Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Bruce Ouellette, who's the founder of a real estate investment firm called Bakerson. He has over 20 years experience in real estate. He has a ton of knowledge and experience and he'll be happy to share with our listeners today. So you're really going to want to check out this one and, and listen in through the whole episode. So Bruce, welcome to the show, man. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm excited for you to share all the knowledge you have with all your experience. So just going to give you a little bit of an intro before we kind of dive into some of the more details about your story and, and what you're kind of working on right now. So Bruce is the founder, visionary, and the current owner of Bakerson. He has a proven track record of success throughout Bakerson's nearly 18 years in business with thousands of individual units bought, repositioned, and sold. Bruce has overseen all aspects of the business, including operations, acquisition, project leadership, equity fund management, property-specific syndications, legal, finance, and more. His focus is on finding good deals while his passion is serving the residents by providing them with one of their basic human needs, shelter. Prior to launching Bakerson in 2002, he served on the acquisition team at a Phoenix-based real estate investment company. So Bruce, that's just a, a little bit of an intro on yourself. So could you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, what you're currently focusing on? Sure, I can uh, I, I can do that. One of the things to, I think to note would where I started. So I started in uh, single family buy, fix and sell in uh, 2000, 2001, doing real estate uh, before that was, I'm sorry, uh, tax lien foreclosures. And I did that with another partner. I was a minority owner of his of his projects. And I, I seen that he was leaving a lot of money on the table. So I started buying some from him and fixing them up and selling them. And we, I did a couple of those. And I had two other partners that we were all working part-time in this business. And I was full-time doing tax lien foreclosure uh, research. And then uh, I met my friend, Jack Martin, or on business. And we talked about forming... Uh, an alliance, and that's what became Bakerson. People ask, "Where's the name? You know, what's Bakerson?" I've been called Bruce Bakerson, Mister Bakerson, and actually, my uh, my dad uh, and Jack's dad worked together at my grandfather's bakery in the '60s, and so we're um, we're SOBs, we're sons of bakers, so we're Bakerson, and so that's kind of fun. So that's it was it was paying homage to our fathers and, and remembering them. My my father's now been gone for years, but he was around when I uh, when I named the company Bakerson, and he was pretty happy to to see that. So it's in honor of him. And then, um, you know, so then when we got into, uh, Jack and I started going full-time, I was finding more properties we could possibly fix and sell. And we got into, uh, I was introduced to wholesaling and I was like, okay, this is really neat. We could, we could wholesale, flip these contracts, flip these properties. And the first year we did over 60 properties, 47 to one buyer. And that guy is still a friend of mine today. And it's been many years of development and so that's how we got into the, the housing. And then we did um, over 2,000 transactions in single family. And it was, uh, it was quite the journey, quite the work environment. My, uh, one of my favorite memories is we had seven escrows closing at three title companies on the same day. And we were rushing to, to banks, getting wires in and out and transferred. It was really, really fun. But that's what 
Um, that became the catalyst on why we only use our title company, we're really adamant. And we've continued to practice as much as we possibly can. Um, and then the market shifted and we could dive into that later if you wanted, but I think you want more multifamily. So how do we get into multifamily? We started finding multifamily deals and wholesaling and flipping those to other investors. And a group came to us and said, hey, we need some help on this project. You wanna join our team? So, so we did and we bought a 64 unit building with them and 120 unit. I was like, wow, we can do this on our own. So we've done, you know, in Phoenix, a six, an eight, a 22, 64, 120. And then in Tucson, we've done uh, 11 projects now um, in the last four years, smallest being 12 units, largest being 107. So our, our carved out niche or niche, as I'm, I guess I'm supposed to say now that the French enunciation, but um, our niche is uh, 75 to, to 100 is really, 60 to 100 is really what we've carved out and done well with. Uh, but our expansion in the future is going to be, it's going to be a little bit different than that. And we can get into that. We have some follow-up questions. But that gives a real quick look at where we were, where we came from, where we are now. And we closed on our most recent sale last Thursday, a 74 unit in Tucson we closed on. So well, congratulations. Next chapter. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think we, well, we connected last week and I think you were talking a little bit about that deal and going through. And I think this might've been the one that you said they might write, you might write a book about and they could become a bestseller because of all the twists and turns that you had to deal with this particular project. But uh, maybe we'll yeah, dive so, into that one a little bit yeah. later, but what was the, the mindset where you decided that you needed to transition into multifamily? It sounded like you were having a lot of success in single family. Was it just a matter of scale? That's part of it. That's part of it. And looking back, that's what you would think. But the, the primary reason was things when it, uh, we were buying at the auction, we were buying REOs um, and things went electronic, like extremely fast. Like you could, when I first started going to the auction, people that would call us say, Hey Bruce, I want to buy this property. It's going to auction on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Will you bid on it for me? I said, yeah. And I said, uh, do you have a way to take it down? They said, well, don't I have 30 days? And I said, no, you have 24 hours. I can't possibly close on that house in 24 hours. So I said, okay, I can help you. So we'd find the, 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 the hard money lender, put up, you know, they put up the money. We'd find the title company to secure the, the loan. And we, we'd do all that for the buyers. And then they would buy the property from us um, either that, you know, that day or sometimes within a week, depending on how we set it up. And we would take it down in our name only if we knew it was a good deal should our buyer not be able to perform. But then it became where we were able to secure those for a small fee. We'd flip it to, we'd take it down at the auction, flip it to these, these buyers, either homeowners or investors. Uh, but then everything went online and you could go online. You could get you know, our competitors. You could buy title insurance. They would add $1,200 to the price of their bid, include title insurance and a link to hard money, 90% um, financing. You bring in 10, 10% down, it's your deal. Um, and so we just, we didn't evolve with that. We were more, um, stuck in the old ways, if you would. And so we've seen that that was getting evolved, uh, getting um, eroded in the amount of money that our spreads were too tight. You know, we were averaging about $5,800 per, per house that we sold in profit. And that's if we took it down or we flipped it, our average over the course of those years was $5,800. Well, they were doing it for 1,200 and we just couldn't, to scale, we'd have to do so much more volume, plus have the technology set up. So we were behind the curve on that. So that's when we shifted into multifamily wholesaling. And then um, we found found some deals. And we found investors, put the deal together, and got you know anywhere from twenty five to a hundred thousand dollars 
in the transactional fee depending on the project. And when I seen that, I said, man, they're, they're doing really well on the back end. Why don't, we, why don't we fix it up ourselves and do our own projects, put our own uh, you know, stamp on the, on, the, on the deal. And I, I just seen the numbers there. And then uh, my son had come to me numerous times and bugged me. He says, you know, we really need to buy, we really need to hold that this, turning these properties over the course of 18 months or 36 months is fun, but why don't we hold some long-term? And that's where we're going in the next generation of our business is, is to hold them for legacy ownership. But what I found in this, in this journey of real estate is my desire to take care of the homeowners when I was selling houses. We sold in the last couple of years, probably 75, 80% were sold to homeowners. And we carried notes and we sold the financing and uh, did not make money on that part of the transaction just on the sale of the house. We would set up the money for free for the homeowners and then when the dog freight uh, law came in, I completely killed the seller carry back, sell the note option that we had set up and done hundreds of. So that was another transitional thing that made it more difficult for us to do our business the way we did it. And But what I learned through all of that is focusing on the homeowner and foc focusing on the resident has been very, very impactful for me. And you can see it in the community. The crime rates go down, the 911 calls go down, and the the residents are happier with a more stable environment. So that's why the multifamily became so ingrained is the, the personal impact we can have with the resident. Right. And you mentioned you started off in wholesaling or doing kind of quick flips of multifamily apartment buildings. I've actually never really gotten into depth and, and heard many people using the strategy. And because it's obviously going to create some different level of challenges, it's not like a it might not just be like a single family house where you're going to do a quick turn. Like there's more complexities to it. There's probably more of a, uh, a smaller pool of buyers because there's, you know, whether it's a syndication group or a, a fund or something like that, what were some of the challenges that you faced doing that method? How quick did you kind of go in and out of buying that property or putting it under contract and wholesaling it? Or you kind of even mentioned going up to like a 12 to 18 month hold period. So kind of dive into that a little bit more about how you, did those wholesaling and quick flips of these types of multifamily apartments? Yeah, it was uh, about 25 wholesale flips is what we did on the apartment level before we got to the buy, fix, uh, you know, the buy, fix, restabilize and sell. Um, but like one was a 250 space mobile home park and we just went into contract with the buyer and then we flipped the contract through a, a brokerage here in Phoenix. They had a buyer that, I mean, with the seller, I'm sorry, with the seller, signed the contract with the seller. And then we, we met with a local brokerage who specialized in multifamily mobile home parks outside of the Phoenix Metro. And they had a buyer that really wanted it. So then we just, um, we just did the, uh, the assignment of our contract while we were in escrow. Um, so that's primarily how we did it. And it was uh, the challenges you have. Yeah, it's a different buyer's group. But at that time, units were selling so much more, so much far below what we're selling at today that the risk was very minimal for these buyers to come in. I mean, they're buying it for, you know, 20, 25,000 a door. And now they're going, the same ones are, are going for 60 to 80 a door on the low end and 100 to 150 on the higher end. And we were getting in for 25, you know, 30 a door. And some of the buyers that previous to us were buying it for 10 to 12,000 a door. And so we, we said, well, it's, double what that is, but it's still pretty you know, low dollar. It's a fraction of cost of, of repair, of replacement, of the build out. So uh, the biggest challenge was, um, you know, making sure the buyers were going to actually close. 
So what we do is we put up, if, if things went non-refundable on our side, it went non-refundable on our sales side. And we just mirrored our, our agreements. If we had a 30-day inspection, the buyer got a 21-day inspection or a 14-day, depending on how far into the contract we were prior to um, the, the end of the, or from when we opened escrow till the end of the inspection period, how fast we were able to bring a buyer in. And we had a pretty good system and we were able to bring those in. Yeah. And when you talk about systems, especially in the wholesaling side of things, the biggest thing is finding good deals that people want to have, right? And it sounded like that's how you made the transition into multifamily. You found good deals and were able to flip them quickly and probably built some good systems along the way that helped you do that and continue to do that even in your business now where you actually look to hold them and, and do some value add components. So what kind of strategies are you using to find these great deals, whether they be off market, going directly to brokers, building relationships that way? Could you kind of touch on some of the strategies that are working well for you to find some great deals? Yeah, in, in Phoenix, it was kind of a little bit of everything. We only did uh, what five or six properties in Phoenix. So the, um, you know, the couple were brought from another investor. Uh, another one was for sale on a wholesale list, and we, we decided to try to flip it. Um, and then we found out that, hey, that's a great one. We could own that one as a 22 unit. And that one was actually quite fun because it was condemned by the city of Glendale. It was, uh, the owner was uh, charged with some crimes and he was in bankruptcy and in, a, and in foreclosure on the property. And it was scheduled for demolition um, mid-April, five years ago, so 2015, and, uh, or 14 or 15. And we were able to talk the city of Glendale out of demoing it, giving us an opportunity to fix it, get some permits to get it re, you know, re, uh, retenanted. And we did, we did, we met their guidelines and they gave us a lot of, they worked with us really closely to get through the uh, inspection process. And we did really well on that property. It was only 22 units, but it was, it was a disaster. Um, but that was not the question. It was just sharing a story from some of our history there. Um, the, so that one was through, a, I think that was through a wholesaler's list, or it might've been, it might've been for sale through a broker after search for recollection. But so we've done through broker, we've done direct to owner. And we've also done uh, cooperative direct mail campaigns with a broker. Like we'll mail out, we'll give them ad, uh, you know, the criteria and addresses and owners to send letters to, and then they send the letters on, and say, hey, I've got a buyer interested in your property, and they give the guy, you know, they work up, and we bought uh, two properties through a broker. We did the direct, we we did the direct mail advertising with them, and then they they did the they brokered the deal, and then we did one where we worked directly with an owner. And Ben, my son, does acquisition. He was just hanging out or just ca calling the guy periodically. How do you like your property? And found out a pain point was the drive between Sierra Vista and Tucson it was his only only business in Tucson, and he was getting kind of tired of it. And, so Ben just kept talking about that. Hey, how's that drive going? How's that drive treating you? And pretty soon the guys, you know, you're right. I should just sell. And we got a pretty good deal on that one, a 75 unit. So um, we've used all that, you know, door knocking, uh, finding the owners, working with brokers, working uh, list, ca uh, canceled listings, expired listings, uh, listings that they can co-star. It, it goes under contract and then it comes back on. The day it comes back on, we'll blast out an offer to know that, hey, it's the other, the other deal fell through. Um, one deal we worked on, uh, 28 unit or 27 unit next door to our 80 unit. We had 80 unit building and then it was 27 unit, which actually brought us to Tucson, the first building we looked at. And it was 14 months from when we made our first offer until we got it under contract. And he had it in three or four other escrows that kept falling out of escrow because there was, it was a lot of problems. And so we were the low bid, but it took him 14 months to finally accept our offer. 
and then we closed on it and combined it with the 80 unit to become 107 units. We sold that last end of, the, end of last year. It sounds like you're just employing a lot of different strategies and really it's not just one thing. It's when you're trying to get the best deal flow for the best properties, you are employing like multiple strategies from door knocking to going directly to the seller, direct mail campaigns, brokers, and really just utilizing any little mean that you can to go and, and get in touch with these sellers, right? So when you're actually sourcing these deals and they come across your desk, it sounds like your son works in the acquisition side of things and he's probably maybe leading the charge on the underwriting. What are some of your steps that you're looking for when you're doing that underwriting? You know, maybe some KPIs that you're looking for or what are some of the criteria that you look for when you're actually doing that underwriting the deal? Well, there's there basically three metrics we're comparing against because they, they shift depending on the market condition. So there's price, the rental price per square foot. And then there's the purchase price per square foot and the purchase price per unit. So there's certain thresholds that are hard to hard to cross. Like for a while, everything was in the, you know, the retail is around the 40, 45,000 a square foot in the neighborhood. And then you're wondering, okay, we're, this one here to sell, we have to be at 52 to make it work. Will we be able to cross the $50,000 a unit threshold? And then you look, well, the rents are $1.10 per square foot when all the comps are $1.25, that absolutely we can push it over that, that threshold. Or um, like Bellevue that we bought, we purchased at just over 50 cents per square foot on the purchase price per square foot. We can't build for that. It costs you, you know, 160, 165 to build that same building. So you know that the replacement cost, so anything under, you know, $70 a square foot, we should be underwriting, at least making a run at it to see because of the um, those are really large units. There's thousand square foot units, which are rare um, in workforce class C housing. So those are the basic three, the price per square foot of the rental units, depending if they're studio one, two or three bedroom, you know, the studio is going to be, you know, closer to the 130 to $150, $30, $50 per square foot for rent. And then the price per square foot uh, under 70 is, is our target. We don't always get that, but that's the target. And the price per unit depends on the neighborhood. Like we're selling now for in the mid, mid to high 50s per unit, which is uh, pretty reasonable. But you know, getting above 60 on some of those CC minus neighborhoods is pretty difficult right now. When will that thre threshold be crossed? And then we can re-examine re some of the other properties we looked at in the area. Right. So you laid out a lot of the KPIs there that you're looking for. So say everything looks good. You're ready to make an offer. You get the property under contract. What are some of the due diligence steps that you're taking on to actually make sure that hey, this is the right property for us? There's no you know, major renovations or I mean, well, renovations is obviously part of the business plan, but there's no items in there that are going to prevent you from buying the property. And uh, could you go into some of the details of what you look for when inspecting the asset and making sure that it's a, it's a deal that you actually want to go forward with? It's probably the biggest things to look for is, uh, you know, is it aluminum or, or copper electric? You know, that's, there's some old buildings that have aluminum that's a challenge. So we have to take that into consideration. Then you have to look at, well, before that, even you look first, you list of things that they've disclosed in their offering and in their pre-inspection. You look at their you know maintenance history, what are they repairing? But you, you kind of get a feel for what's going on at the property. But the electrical, you know, is electrical, is it is it copper or is there a lot of aluminum wiring? That's a challenge. And then uh, is it copper, copper uh, plumbing or is it galvanized? And then that's a challenge. Um, is the is the uh, sewage, is it um, cast iron or is it clay or what kind of what kind of draining, you know, drain pipes are they? So the biggest things that we have had that we look at is the roof, condition of the roof, condition of the, the HVAC, and the 
especially the underground plumbing. We'll have those those lines um, camera at all the at all our purchases. Have them camera to see if, you know if there's any issues. If there's are there roots growing in there, you know in the in the drainage. And if there is, you know you can get them uh, roto rooted out and you know clear up the clear up the lines. But the biggest challenge is we had the missteps that we've had have all been around HVAC and plumbing. And those are the things to be very, very conscientious of because those are hidden costs. If you don't, if you're not careful, it, it could really cost you a lot of money. Right. So you review the details, go through the due diligence, inspect the asset. Now, let's say you close on the property and now you're looking to move into that value add business plan. So walk me through some of the next steps on what you'd be looking to undertake in a typical deal that you guys look to implement or acquire. Um, talk a little bit about the value add business plan. What are you going to go to do once you actually close on the asset and, and look to boost the value from day one? Yeah, you know, um, this is this is really interesting because we've evolved on that. When we first the twenty two unit was the first one that Ben and I did on our own, and that was our first deal. That was a father son team. And we looked at it and we thought, okay, this is great. So we focused on what we thought was important, which is the inside. We did some upgrades on the inside. We did some pretty nice cabinetry, countertops, flooring. And then the outside, we painted nice color and the landscape was very minimal. There was trees and gravel, that's it. There was no amenities, there was no barbecues, nothing, because people don't use them anyway. But when it came down to purchase, the guy purchased, people purchasing it, they're like, there's no amenities here. You know, there's, the, there's, there's no barbecue, there's no picnic tables. It's like, well, have you ever been to an apartment building? They don't use them. So I'm looking at it from a logical standpoint and, and realize that it's more important for many residents that the property looks really nice from the outside and inside the unit, it could be in class C, C minus, even C plus. It can be all vanilla interiors, you know, white walls, white cabinets, um, formica countertops, uh, plain knobs. You don't have to go with the, the brush nickel or anything. So that's one thing that we've upgraded things we probably didn't have to there. And then we didn't upgrade things we, we could have. So that that was, uh, we did really well on it. But it was, it was a learning experience to understand what do the residents really want? What do the buyers really want? And as we transitioned into Tucson, the first thing we had to do when we go into a place, we do landscaping, paint, and exterior, and then we work on the interior units. And we found out the challenge with that is as you're doing that, you, the new owner comes in, there's uh, the vacancy goes up, there's, you know, we, we have stricter criteria, so we get rid of the problem residents, but we're focused on the outside and the, the occupancy continues to drop. And then that valley of death where you have negative cash flow can be quite, quite long. We had like a 74 unit. We brought down to 17 occupied units. So it's not making any money at that point. But we focus on the outside first. Well, the last two buildings we purchased, the first thing we did is we're going to focus on stabilization and interior units, get those all ready. Once that's complete, we're at 90 for 90. Then we can go into some longer financing, go into ex the exterior renovations, the painting, the landscape, the parking lot, the fencing, things that are you can see from the street. And we found out that doing it in that format has actually been a better model, at least for us, is focus on the resident interior units first, get those stabilized, get the property stabilized, and then, then focus on the outside. And now we have a property that's, you know, we might sell here in the next month or so, it might close, it's in an inspection period, but we, we never even got to the outside and we already got offers. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. So do you feel like you've kind of got it boiled down to, hey, this is our cookie cutter template of what we look to implement on our properties from the, the value add business plan is, or is it kind of evolving and case by case scenario? It'll, it'll vary, you know, whether it's largely or kind of very immaterially on a given deal. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? If it if it looks the same or you're moving towards like a templated model of like, hey, this is this is what we look to do on our value add business plans? I believe that the that the direction is evolving and we've got it, I don't know if it's cookie cutter, but we've certainly got some some certain criteria in place that stabilize the business or stabilize the asset first. Treat we treat it like its own business and stabilize that first. Make sure you get the rentals the rent stabilized and do the do the uh, interior upgrades as people are moving out and continue that through the life of the project and then a- after that's done and you're stable then you can go you can attack the outside the paint and the landscaping and the parking lot and other things i believe if you go in that order it's going to be a shorter cycle to stability because you're not going to be able to raise the rents as high until after you've done the outside work but you can at least start to push you know push the rents to where to market and kind of see where that where that um, ceiling is and then as you upgrade the units and upgrade the exterior and do those other things, you can bump the reds even a little bit higher after. So it's a little bit um, longer on that part of it, but the light between the, the bookends of the project, the three-year project, I believe stabilizing the asset first and, and addressing the outside second is better um, better use of the money and more efficient, more efficient and better returns for the investors. Right. And you talked about on one of your deals there where you actually had the negative cash flow where must have been a, a deeper value add where you went through numerous units and you had down to 17 occupied units of 77. I think it was 77. So 74. 74. Okay. So are you just budgeting that into your forecast, such as having extra cash reserves on hand, or how do you predict vacancy at any given time where you're kind of predicting for that negative cash flow to make sure that you can weather that storm and, and be able to have adequate cash on hand. What are you doing to make sure that you can get through that time? Uh, we make sure that we have the capital in, in the bank for the first year of payments in reserves. Because the first year, you're not going to be cash flowing. The money that you're making will cover a little bit of some of your expenses, but the actual, the biggest expense being the loan, especially on these ones where we've taken with higher interest hard money loans because they're not performing. The 74 unit was 50% vacant when we had it, and it had a laundry list of problems um, that we knew about and we were willing to take on. And so you want to make sure you have the 12 to 18 months of payments in reserves through the if you're if you're syndicating or partnering on it, make sure that the investors have put up the funds ahead of time so that there's no issue on making those payments to the lender. Or you can always there's some lenders that have allowed to defer like first six months payments. You don't start making payments till month seven, and they put it on the back end. There's you know there's different negotiations you can do with uh, hard money or, or private money that you you can't necessarily do with the bank. Right. So when you actually go and do these renovations, I think you go and actually have your construction team in house, or do you actually go and utilize a whether it be a property management company that has the the construction trades involved with them or do you actually go in and do this by yourself and manage the construction renovations with your own team we uh the answer is depends okay the if it's a lighter if it's a lighter turn and lighter um lighter lighter unit turns we do that through the property management but it is micromanaged by our um, project manager on staff here at, at bakerson and then the larger renovations we do we do a higher out we subcontract it and we hire all the subs ourselves and manage that process from uh, on the on the heavy value add or the heavy turns. So if they're full turns where we've got to go down to the drywall and and then we manage that all the way through. But if it's you know replace a countertop and a toilet and, and carpet, then we let the property management company do that. And so there's thresholds that we have depending on the project. Maybe it's a thousand dollars turn would be done by the property manager, 
anything over that is done by us or overseen by us. And we'd get a bid from our contractor as well because property managers may or may not be less expensive than hiring your own contractor. Sometimes they have a better system, sometimes they don't. So it, at some point, maybe you know, between one and $2,000, you can start opening up to bid to your own crews. And we don't, have, we don't employ the crews, they're all subs that we hire. Um, we just, uh, you know, just general them from in-house ourselves. So th that's primarily how we do it. But the heavy turns are always done by us. Right. So what led to that decision of you um, as a group deciding that that was the road to go for the heavy value adds, taking on the construction yourself? Was it just a matter of maintaining quality or maintaining costs? What kind of led to that decision? The quality has, has typically been pretty consistent, whether we do it or the property management. It comes down to cost and it comes down to timelines because time is money. And there's, I don't think there's anybody that has the same sense of urgency that an owner has. Um, you know, property managers are great. We hire them. So obviously, you know, they, they, they bring a value to us. The third parties bring a value, but they still don't have the same sense of urgency to get this done as fast as possible as necessarily the owner would. Uh, but the biggest thing is cost. We're able to buy materials at a, at a reduced cost. There's no markup. We don't do um, a markup on the materials where if you hire a third party or you hire a, uh, a general a contractor to do the work, they add to the, the cost of the, of the materials. Where there's no, there's no cost added cost of the materials. Our pro project manager orders the materials and he's making runs during the heavy season, sometimes twice a week down from Phoenix to Tucson and buying them on discount because we buy them in bulk. And at times we've even put a storage, one of those conixes on the property and filled it up with all the toilets, filled it up with all the sinks beforehand. So when they, when they turn, all the construction guys do is go into the conix, grab a toilet, go install it. The property manager goes in there, grabs a toilet and installs it. And we, you buy in bulk that way and it paid for the cost of the purchase of a conix that we um, kept on the property during the, pro, um, the renovations. So what are some of the challenges that you faced by actually taking on the, the contracting of the project yourself? Do you find that it's it's you know something that adds a lot to whether it be overhead for you guys managing or or challenges from project timelines? Um, I know you mentioned there's some cost savings by t potentially saving that money by um, you know being able to get discounts on on purchasing materials. But what are some of the challenges that you actually run into by taking on the project yourself? Probably when we have a, a, a pretty big crunch at one time at multiple buildings that need to get done. And we have one crew that we work with down there and he has, uh, you know, anywhere from one to four employees with him. It depends on how busy he is. So it might be a delay in getting him to the property and getting it done. Um, so we're, we look for other subs to, to step in. Um, it would come and turn the units, but it's, that's been a little bit of a challenge and it's lessened now over the last, uh, you know, over the last six or nine months, but for a while there, the labor shortage was so severe that, these guys were, you know, sometimes two, three weeks out for something that should take maybe a day to get done. So that's one of the challenges is just be able to ramp up quick enough to meet the demands. Where a property management company, if they're large enough, they may have resources to ramp up overnight on a project or, get, or stop what they're doing and attack your unit because you're in and out in a day and then go back to their, what they were working on before. So some of the challenges just be able to ramp up quick enough on a heavy turn. Right. No, that's perfect. It gives a good good background on what it kind of takes to take on the project yourself. Um, you, you hear a lot of groups that actually just go and employ like a property manager to take that on for various reasons, but it's good to have some insight firsthand from you, what your experience has been with, by taking the projects on yourself. So that's great to hear. I kind of want to dive into now a little bit about the particular markets that you're investing in. So you had said Tucson and Phoenix 
are the two key areas that you're investing in. So what do you like about these areas? Uh, what do you kind of foresee coming up in the next little while? I don't know if you want to give a prediction <laughs> about these markets, but yeah, just give us some background on the market. What are you kind of seeing in, in these particular areas? Well, it's pretty interesting. When we uh, when we decided to pause in Phoenix and, and pursue Tucson, we were seeing down there that the rents were up maybe 20 or down 20% of Phoenix rents, but the purchases were 50%. So I thought, hey, there's a there's a spread there. We could make this work, get some profit, get some good cap rate. You know, the cap rate's going to be a little bit higher in Tucson than it is in Phoenix. That's fine. Um, just, you know, factor that in. And so when we made that that shift, like I say, the, the, the rents were 20% or, you know, 80, the rents were 80% of Phoenix rents, but the price per unit was 50% of, of Phoenix. So it's like, man, that spread is there. Well, now that spread has, has the gap has, has shrunk. But when, when I thought that Phoenix had uh, peaked, so I don't know if you want my, my opinion or not, because I thought, you know, Phoenix has probably peaked uh, like four or five years ago. I said, I just don't see these numbers going up too much further. Um, and they've doubled. So, <laughs> so I don't know that, that I'm that good of a prognosticator, but I can tell you what I'm hearing in the streets from brokers. Because, uh, you know, had I listened to them, you know, four or five years ago, we'd be in a, we'd be in a different spot. Maybe we wouldn't because, the, you know, the, the competitiveness of buying assets, I think people were overpaying and are overpaying on some instances for Class C. C plus and B minus have probably been pretty safe because they've been pretty stable. Um, but in what I'm seeing, we probably have another, you know, the, the people that we're working with, think we probably have we have a little bit of a slowdown here now going through the summer but many of them are saying that fourth quarter this year and first and second quarter next year they see continued growth that this current pandemic that's hitting us is is a, a moment in time and not a, a permanent or a, a hard hit recessionary you know we might be in recession um, by definition which um, I come back to in just a moment but we're seeing that they, they're predicting we have growth for the next three quarters uh, soft the second or third quarter this year, fourth quarter this year, and first, second next year, they see it continue to rise um, in Phoenix and Tucson. Um, and that's as far out as they've gone. But, you know, I'm thinking, I, I think I agree with them. The rents are, are collected pretty good. We're uh, about 100% collected on occupied units, which is between 99 and 100 month after month. And some months we're over 100% because of the people are catching up on late fees, oddly enough, in, in Tucson. So that's been good. Uh, movement is less. There's less movement in the residents because of the uncertainty what's going on. Um, I do not know how many of the residents have subsidized unemployment or government handouts that they're living off of, but those are coming to an end here probably in August. So we'll or you know, July, August. So we'll see how September, October, November collections go, and that'll be I think a better prediction of where the future will be in the Tucson markets based on those metrics. Um, so that's kind of a long answer, but that's. That's what I'm hearing in the street, and I don't tend to disagree with them that the, where the market's going on that. Um, and then back to uh, a recession. A recession, by definition, is when there's two consecutive quarter, uh, quarters of uh, negative GDP. And so once you have the first one, then you would monitor, and then when the second one hits, you're, you have a recession. So we are recessionary time, but I don't know by definition we've hit that recession yet. I think we need another uh, month or you know two months probably before we see if it's actually been a, a true recession or a recessionary blip. So that's my, that's my opinion. It's not advice. Don't take it to the bank. Uh, do your own studies, right? Exactly. No. And that's where I cautiously ask for your opinion and, and you know, it's, it's helpful to kind of see what you're seeing in the market. I mean, you're, 
you've been there for so many years and kind of seen the ups and downs that it's faced over the last number of years. And just knowing that Arizona and Phoenix, like that was a place that got hit hard uh, during the last recession. So what are some of the economic indicators that you, know, you think or um, that kind of indicate that Phoenix and Arizona, Tucson, like overall the state of Arizona is kind of poised to weather a downturn and actually be one of those stable places to, to be allocating capital and investing into multifamily properties in. Yeah, could you speak on that a little bit? Because right now everyone is cautiously looking at where where are some of the places that are going to be preserving your capital, especially during this kind of downturn, this odd time that we're in um, with this interruption due to the virus. But yeah, what do you kind of see or, you know, from the economic standpoint that makes it appeal to you uh, to continue looking to acquire assets in that area? Okay, a couple of things what we're seeing is um, from the property level, the, the property owners are not coming down much on their pricing. So buyers are trying to beat up sellers on pricing right now. You know, people have tried to beat us up on a couple of buildings that we've sold or sold or have had on the market recently. Uh, but we're not budging. You know, we're gonna we're gonna hold firm on those numbers. We feel that the numbers are are good and the collections are are decent. The other thing that's that's showing here, so that's from the property side, but the other the, one of the things that that are um, affecting that are the banks. Banks are not necessarily valuing the properties differently as much as requiring more. So they, they, they might only do 60 to 65% LTV, maybe up to 70, or they're not going to go up to 80 right now. They're most of them around 65 to 70% loan to value on a, on a refi or on a purchase. So that's a challenge because you got to bring in more capital. We had a buyer in one of our buildings that ended up going with a smaller building because the lender retraded him on the loan and he had to come in with more money. And because the more they didn't value the property differently, they just said they needed more down payment. And so on his 1031, he ended up buying a smaller building. So that's one thing that, that could be happening. But the prices, especially in Phoenix, have not dropped, um, even though the lending may have. The other thing that we're seeing is the population growth continues. There's still a lot of uh, people moving here. There's a lot of companies uh, wanting to move here. And there's more diversity in the marketplace regarding the employers. In the last recession, um, you know, I don't have exact data, but I know that one of the largest industries was construction. Well, you can't feed yourself that way. Eventually, these people have to go work somewhere. They, everybody can't be in construction. You can't lift yourself up by your own boots, right? So there's, that was one of the challenges is it was construction was so big. Where now that construction isn't where it was at the peak, but yet the demand is. Um, and then the third area that I'm seeing that's really, really challenging is Class C. Uh, many of the areas in Phoenix where there's gentrification, they've moved to uh, Metro A. They've taken the C and D buildings and demolished them, demoed them, and then built uh, Class A. Or they've taken the old buildings and turned into Metro A. So they're old buildings that have been repositioned into Class A amenities. And there's no place for C, the workforce, people to go. And that's a challenge. Anything under $1,200 a month in, in Phoenix is, is getting more and more scarce and under um, you know, 900 a month in, in Tucson um, for the higher C. But anything below 750 in Tucson is hard to find and anything below 1,000 in Phoenix, almost non-existent, except for in the higher crime uh, problematic areas. So those are three areas that I see the demands continue. So if you could service those that are permanent resident, the ones who may never own a home, if you could take care of those, I believe there's a long, long road, long runway that you could ride 
Um, but if you're in the B plus and A, A into the A, you know, I, I'm not as, as well versed in that, but it seems like the construction is, is really going over the top in class A and I'll see how long that, you know, sustains. I think closer into the city, you'll do well, but the ones that are further out from the Metro uh, might face some more challenges. So. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic outlook on what's going to happen in the market and really appreciate you kind of giving some insight there. So I'm going to kind of start wrapping it up here, but I wanted to ask you this question here, more of a personal and business side of things, but where do you kind of see the vision and direction of Bakerson in the next, let's call it five, 10 years? Where do you see it going? Well, I, I, I have found that as a, as the owner and the, the person that's you know, been here the longest, of course, that started the company that as we've evolved, my, my ambition now is to is I just know that purchasing and stabilizing an asset is where I get really excited. Um, and selling it, I don't get excited. It's it's just not that fun of a process. Um, it, it's it's mind-numbing at times because you think you've answered all their questions and they come back with 20 more. And it's like, you know, do you do you know anything about real estate? Do you really think you should be buying this building, even though it might be your 10th building? They ask these questions like, are you serious? Like I buy based on what I can do, not what the property has done. And a lot of buyers buy up, they beat you up on what the property has done, knowing full well what they're going to do with the property, but they use that as a tool. And I'm like, you know, what if I bought and never sold? And so that our, our ambition is legacy ownership where we buy with no intent to sell. And if we do sell, it's going to be a smooth transition with a known, you know, known buyer and seller and a, a high-performing asset. So my goal is to build uh, you know, legacy high-performing assets and go into the long, long hold. And so that's where I see in five years, you know, to have a few thousand units that are performing and spitting out happy checks to the investors. Very cool strategy. So, yeah, I'm going to start wrapping it up here. We're just going to go into the final four questions where you give short to the point answers. So what is your favorite real estate or business book? Relentless by Tim S. Grover. Yeah, and I haven't heard many people recommend that one, but I do know the book. It's fantastic. He's for those who don't know, he was the trainer of Michael Jordan and just kind of talks about the difference between like these high performing people, like what it kind of takes from the mindset standpoint of, of being such a high level performer. So I love the book as well. It's fantastic. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? I wish I knew more about how money works. Perfect. Just leverage, yeah, leverage, lever, leverage versus cash versus, um, you know, and we're learning, you know, I've learned now, but I wish I would have known more about that. Yeah, great. So what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? Um, wake up, I wake up early. I've had a habit of that for some time. And I, th- what I've been doing now is getting up in the first 40 minutes of the day I read. And my current book is The uh, Secrets of Banking and Real Estate. Wow, I'll have to check that one out. So... What do you do for fun? Uh, well, f- first and foremost is family. Uh, 29 years married, six children, and uh, grandchildren number nine and 10 on the way. That's that's our my primary focus. But for individual is mountain biking. I do it uh, 90 minutes, six days a week. And the first thing in the morning in the summer, we'll, you know, the winter's in the afternoons. But yeah, mountain biking. Wow, it sounds like you had your hands full or still do have your hands full with all the, the kids you have. And it's a big family. I actually have six siblings myself, so total seven seven uh, that my parents had, and uh, well, there's actually six boys, so it was always kind of fun around the house and and wild at at points in time. So, but that's cool to have 
family as your priority. So how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, there's uh, you go to Bakerson, B-A-K-E-R-S-O-N.com. You could email me, Bruce at Bakerson.com, or you could call me. And I challenge people to call me with any question, and I'll give my opinion. My phone number is 520-808-9111. And encourage the listeners to, if they do have a question and want to get in touch with Bruce, feel free to give them a call. So, Absolutely. Yeah, Bruce, it was, it was awesome having you on the show. You shared a lot of wisdom and, and your knowledge about, about the Arizona market, about your value-add plans, what you're doing at Bakerson. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing so much with my audience. So thanks again and talk to you again soon. Hey, thanks for having me on and I really appreciate the opportunity. Hopefully somebody walks away with uh, at least one nugget of information that's of value to them. Exactly. So perfect. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.